Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Poddleters. How are you doing? This week, I speak to Laura Mooker, who is the author of Love Factually, the science of how and why we fall in love. And I ask her just that. Why do we fall in love? I really hope you enjoy this. It's a pretty good one. See you. Bye. Hi, guys, and welcome to Adulting. This week, I'm joined by Laura Mooker. Hi. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So, Laura, would you like to tell everyone who you are, what you do? Yeah. Um, My name's Laura Mooker. I was a lawyer. And then I was hit by a car and I was 29 and I decided to change career and I decided to finish the book that I'd been working on for a long time and it's now taken 10 years and it was published earlier this year and it's called Love Factually and for that I interviewed hundreds of strangers across every continent about love and then I researched what came up in the interviews and I also um, write for children. So when you started writing this book you were still a lawyer? Yes. So was it going to be a book at that point in time? Was it like a passion project? Um, It was going to be a book. And I remember my ex-boyfriend at the time, now my husband. Oh, lovely. um, (laughs) Who is quite discerning. With his positive feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, if he gives you positive feedback, you know that it really is good. Um, And I remember seeing him on one of our rare meetups and telling him that I'd had this idea about this book. And he was like, I think that's a really good idea. I think you should do it. And hearing that from a couple of very trusted people Mm. really helped me commit. And so basically... Um, one of the reasons I did law was to kind of justify traveling around the world Amazing. <laughs> uh, while trying to like look vaguely responsible. And so I did a, an enormous amount of travel and would just approach strangers every time I did. And at the beginning, it was quite um, easy to do. But then it became that any time I went anywhere, I almost couldn't relax until I had attacked a stranger. <laughs> it's that classic thing of when you find something you enjoy and then you turn it into work, it yeah. suddenly becomes yeah. like this overarching goal that you can't escape. Yeah. Uh, but that's one of my favorite things about the book because it is so heavily based on stories and opinions and real life. It's not just statistics and facts and numbers. The no. bulk of it is you chatting to strangers that yeah. you meet about love. I think that when I was a lawyer... I had an avoidant attachment style, which I'm sure we'll come on to, which basically means I didn't really connect with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also a lawyer, so I was kind of trained at being really rational and logical. And so back then, like, the kind of research stuff really appealed to me. I wanted numbers. I wanted evidence. You know, loads of people have opinions, but what's the evidence behind it? Mm. But what I have realized as I went through all my health misery and have kind of moved from avoidance to security, I hope, which will make sense when I talk about it later, is basically that it's all very well having numbers, but I think for things to really land with mm. people, really big, important things, sometimes you need to hear stories, yeah. emotional, lived experiences. And, you know, I can tell you that up to 72% of men and up to 70% of women, depending on the study, cheat. But I, and that's shocking. Mm. But what I've, what is, is 
just as important, I think, is to hear from people who have cheated and have been cheated on um, and really live that. So this lady that I interviewed in Ibiza, whose husband had cheated her, on her the whole in her whole life, throughout their lives, um, and then this has culminated in a three-and-a-half-year affair, it's it's very different. You hear her decision-making, you know, should she leave him, like, in her 80s, mm. should she leave this guy or not, you know? And it's very easy, I think, to kind of hear a stat like that and, and have snap judgments, but then to hear the nuances and feel the emotional pain that people go through. So anyway, that's why I did it. I tried to combine both, but it was a really, 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 really painful, difficult thing mm. to do to try and mix the two. I, I can imagine, but it's something you you look at quite a lot as well throughout the book because you say how, for instance, people will, when asked a question, give a certain answer that they think is what they think or whatever. Mm. But actually the, the real facts or like what they're actually doing, whether that's who they're attracted to or what they look for, is very different from what they're saying. So I think that's why sometimes we have such a shocked um, view of like those statistics but I like, can't believe that many people cheat but if you actually looked into your life and looked at your friends around you like how many of your friends have actually cheated and or you would know those facts to be true but for some reason I think because we can compartmentalize stories in a different way from numbers we see it as a really jarring thing yeah. so it's, it, it is really interesting to juxtapose those two yeah. things throughout the book I think and also sometimes people aren't that honest yes. to the people in their lives so many many of the people I interviewed would say things like for example, a Portuguese lady. I mean, the whole book isn't just about infidelity, but <laughs> uh, this lady I interviewed in Portugal whose husband had cheated on her simultaneously with four people for seven years talked to me about this in tears and told me at the end of the interview that she hadn't... No, it was in the middle of the interview when she broke into tears and was trying to explain her tears. She was like, I'm sorry, I haven't spoken about this in eight years. Um, and I think that there was a lot of... People don't... People don't want to talk about things that they think they'll be judged mm. negatively for. And and that that spans almost everything in relationships. You totally. know, whether that's because you have cheated or you have gone for someone that people don't approve of or you've stayed together with your partner when they've cheated, when everyone thinks you should break up or, you know, whether, whether you break up with everyone all the time. Yeah, there's a lot of shame surrounding relationships yeah. and also so many different incentives as to why we get in them and why we stay in them. And I think that's what's another really interesting thing to read because we all have a really complicated way of, I mean, I think I've had my fair share of relationships. I'm such a serial monogamist. It's horrendous. Um, <laughs> And it's really interesting to think that, like, for me, especially when I was younger, like, a breakup was so heartbreaking, not just because I was losing that relationship, but because, oh, that's another failed relationship, and relationships aren't supposed to fail. Mm -hmm. Yet we know that how impossible is it you're going to meet the person that you would like to spend the rest of your life with, whether or not that's even the right thing to do, the first time you go out with someone. But it's kind of instilled in us that a relationship not working out is a failure, when actually, sometimes I think someone takes you from A to B, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be that forever love yeah well also particularly I would I'm such a granny about this <laughs> I have such boring advice but one of those pieces of advice is if we look at all marriages in 1976 uh in England and Wales and they just looked at women don't ask why I'm sure there was a clever statistical reason um the women who married when they were under 20 were 53% likely to divorce within 30 mm. years. But if they delayed it until their early 30s, it was, uh, what was it, 23%, I think? Oh, wow. And then if they delayed it till their 40s, it was 7%. And so you see this drop 
a dramatic drop. And so the idea that the first person that you ever date should be the person that you are with forever is not helpful. And also, statistically, you're more likely to be in an abusive relationship in your mm. teens or when you're young. And so thinking that you have to be with that person forever is a really dangerous mm. idea. And also... I'm a very, 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 very firm believer that it's not about finding someone. It's also about you mm. looking through whatever dark, swirly stuff you need to look through. And people have different dark, swirly stuff, different amounts, different types, um, to enable you to put the work in that is mm. required because it is work. And sometimes you're just not going to do that when you're 19. Totally. And you just mind me of a bit that you said, like, when you're talking about the dark, swirly bits and whether or not it's like, oh, my God, that boom love that you talk about. But there's a bit where you say how people who are really secure in themselves, um, people might meet them and get on really well with them, but they'll be like, there's just no spark <laughs> or no chemistry. And I was so guilty of that because I would look for passionate love, which mm. would mean screaming matches in the street at uni and, like, these huge fights, which were, to me... Um, like showing love because it was so fire, like in the movies when it's all chaos. And actually, as I get older, you realize that it's not about that. It's about safety and security and all the like things that you talk about in the book. But it was really interesting how actually the people that we should be more drawn to who are probably more healthy for us will be like, mm, mm, quite boring, actually, <laughs> which is they just so problematic. Yeah, thank I've you. Al I also loved your facial expressions. <laughs> That's exactly what they can be. Yeah. And uh I got my sections, most of the vast majority of the book was checked by various academics. And it had to be loads of different ones because there's so many different topics. And I got this uh, brilliant attachment expert to look over my attachment mm. section. And one of them, one of the points that we discussed was this whole idea that secure people can be a bit unexciting because mm. if you Okay, wait, I, can I pause and give the attachment yes, theory summary? So um, I've been mentioning attachment theory. Attachment theory is one of the most researched areas of psychology. And um, the basic premise is that we're all very different when it comes to relationships. So this is largely based on our upbringing, but it can be changed later in life. So your later romantic relationships can change the way you relate in relationships, um, as can bereavement, your parents' divorce, parents' mental health, um, parents' physical health problems, abuse later on, trauma, um, but mostly it's kind of an upbringing thing. And the idea is that if you're bringing me up and you are loving and kind and consistent and when I'm upset and stressed, you are comforting, then I understand that love is safe, essentially, that mm -hmm. people will love me and that um, when I am sad, I can go to someone and they will comfort me and that love is a good thing. And then I will apply that very, very subconsciously to all my relationships. But if I don't get that from you, or if I do and something changes it later on, then I will understand that love isn't as safe as others think it is. So if I think, if I fall into the first camp and I think love is safe, then I have a secure attachment style. And that is true of 58% of the population based on a review of more than 200 studies with more than 10,500 people across the world. Um, and they basically find intimacy and commitment really easy. Mm. Uh, relationships are no biggie and they are less likely to have mental health problems. And there are just so many benefits to secure attachment. But the other option is to have an insecure attachment style. There are two main ones. There's another one which I won't go into because it's a bit more complicated. Um, one is avoidant attachment, which is what I had, which is basically an idealization of independence, a disconnection from emotions, a tendency to break up with people or avoid relationships in the first place. Um, a kind of, you can come across as arrogant or unforgiving or picky. Mm -hmm. um, and that arrogance is m partly because 
if you're the only person you're prepared to rely on, you need to think you're amazing. And so what you can sometimes do or often do is project your insecurities or vulnerabilities onto others. Uh, they need space. When they're stressed out, avoidant people need space. And when I say avoidant, you're, it's not like you are avoidant or not, you're somewhere on a scale. So highly avoidant people mm. need loads of space. And then there's anxious attachment, which is um, basically the other side of it. So there's 23% avoidant, 19% anxious. And uh, people with an a very anxious attachment style need to be close. So when they're stressed out, uh, as you can imagine, avoidant and anxious in a couple, avoidance wants space, but then anxious want closeness. And that can mean withdraw, chase, withdraw, chase. So those pairings aren't always that happy. Um, people with an anxious attachment style, instead of not connecting to their emotions, are hyper-connected to them. So they are very, very sensitive to threats, not just in the relationship, but otherwise as well. And they're not very good at calming themselves down. They find the easiest way to calm themselves down is to be close to their partner. And that means that they can be perceived as needy and clingy. Um, they can find it much easier to be in relationships much more likely to stay in relationships that maybe aren't that great, uh, much more likely to jump into a relationship and think it's going to be the best thing ever. Um, and if they don't get the closeness that they want, they can go into protest behavior, which is something that psychologists call it, which basically means um, being angry and frustrated and saying things like, well, I don't want to be with you anyway, or you want to call me, I don't want to call you, you know. Um, and I think that that's obviously a really quick summary. I mean, it wasn't that quick, but like... <laughs> no, it was good. Comparatively. <laughs> yeah. Um, and people who have an insecure attachment style would ideally date someone who has a secure attachment style because the theory is that if you date someone with a secure attachment style, um, let's say I have an anxious attachment style and you are secure, I might be like, where are you? Where are you? I need you. I need you. And you're like, I'm here. And yes. then I'll go, oh, right, okay, yeah. And then I'll go, I'm, where are you? I need you. I need you. And you'll be like, I'm here. And I'll, oh, okay, yeah, okay, fine. And over time, I'll yeah. just learn that you're here. And yeah. I won't need to feel stressed out as much. And I become more secure. And so the idea is you should date someone secure. But the problem is that dating someone secure will feel quite safe. Whereas what you might find exciting is mm. wondering whether your partner's there or not, you know, because that's... Then you're like, where are they? Where are they? It's a, and you might think that that's love when actually it might just be a hyperactivation mm. of your attachment system. Well, the, the, the anxious attachment thing for me is something that I'd definitely been in a previous relationship. And it made me, I remember when I first read it, I had to do like lots of thought experimenting because that relationship was quite emotionally abusive. So I don't know if, what I couldn't figure out was, was I anxiously attached to them because there was a lot of like gaslighting kind of behavior, which made me then overact or... Was I like that anyway? And then their actions, it was that constant ping pong thing of like pulling away. And then, do you know what I mean? Like that elastic yeah, yeah, band. Yeah. And it was weird reading it from that side because I guess I'd probably, unself-awarely, which is another thing you wrote about in the book, had read all of their actions to be what had caused my behavior. But actually it could have been that in any other relationship, they weren't what I deemed to be emotionally abusive as someone else if the other person wasn't anxious attached. Do you see what I mean? I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, a lot of research on abuse suggests that, well, there was one particular study that I really like, where I think 40% of women and 35% of men in the UK said that they had experienced partner violence in a same-sex relationship. But what I loved about that study is that those people filled out a questionnaire and to begin with, and then they went on to be interviewed. And in that questionnaire, many of them would say, no, no abuse here, no abuse in my life. And then in the interview, they would describe things mm. that were clearly abusive. And so I think that the vast majority of people are very slow 
to see abuse as abuse, mm. particularly emotional abuse. So I think if you thought it was emotional abuse, then I would probably trust you on that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that was after. I didn't know no, at the no, time, fine, but yeah. Fine. Yeah. Uh, also, I th- your attachment style can be changed by your relationships and mm. particularly by abusive relationships. And I mean, I haven't thankfully been in an abusive relationship, but I can imagine that if you have someone who's gaslighting you or basically trying to make you feel like you're going mad mm. or that bullying is your fault or threatening and humiliating and controlling, that that would impact the way you perceive everything, yeah, you know? Yeah, totally. So I, I, but if you're wondering about whether you were um, anxiously attached before, well, the ideal would have been for you to, you know, go and have an attachment interview for one and a half hours <laughs> before oh, wow. with like a trained uh, interviewer. But we could probably like delve into mm. your earlier relationships and try and explore that. Like, do, did you have a pattern of dating avoidant people? Do you remember generally being kind of a bit needy and clingy, you know, like... Well, you could ask your friends and yeah, family. It's true. It's interesting. I think because that was my, like, one of my more adult relationships. So the relationship I had before that, I would have been at school. So you don't really have much scope to no, be anxious no, or no. need or whatever, like, in your... But in your you bar. could be, um, you could be, but then, so then the other option is to look at your relationship with your parents. Yeah, that's true. I don't know if you want to do it on your podcast. <laughs> well, this this other interesting thing I was reading, because I, I got on really well with my parents, and it's an interesting dynamic. I'm really, really close to my mum. But what I was thinking is, my parents couldn't have done anything more than they did for us bringing us up. But at the same time, I 100% can imagine going to a therapist and them telling me why. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, and yeah. so this was another thing that I thought was really interesting to kind of thought experiment was as you read the book, I think some people could feel quite triggered to think, why am I not yes. the secure person? But actually, yeah. I would imagine I'll bring up children and it would be very hard to make sure that they, yeah. if they have children, yeah. that they are secure because any number of things can happen in your life which will make yeah. an environment more hostile than is yeah so it's annoying because this really small kind of like um petri dish of things you need to make a secure child i'm, I'm assuming i mean i don't know was there a statistic on how many people are secure there was wasn't there 58 percent. so it's quite a lot yeah so maybe i'm just <laughs> a bit but also up. you can... <laughs> so also i had a chat with this attachment theorist um attachment researcher about the language that i was using and we were saying we were debating between the use dis- the word destructive mm. and unhelpful for insecure attachment oh, that, yeah and we i was like but i think insecure attachment can be destructive like when i was avoidant i would literally destroy relationships <laughs> it was destructive but her point was that you kind of want to be a bit more compassionate to yourself. And she's right. And there's a lot of evidence, well, no, not evidence, a lot of arguments um, by people saying that insecure attachment is, it was helpful. Like we have evolved for mm. some people to have insecure attachment. If there was, for example, an attack of killer monsters, <laughs> uh, if I was, if I were to be very highly avoidant, I'd be like, no worries, <laughs> no problem. Uh, this is how we escape. But I only planned the escape once I thought there was actually a threat. But I wouldn't think there was a threat because I don't think anything is threatening because I think I can do everything and I don't right. connect to my emotions. Whereas if you were anxious, you would say, uh, attack killer monsters. <laughs> we should probably do something. And so actually that you're being hypersensitive to threats is mm. really useful when there is a threat. And my disconnecting is really useful when we need to get a plan to escape. 
that's really interesting because it's kind of making, I'm a bit of a hypochondriac and my boyfriend hates going to the doctors. And I always think, yeah, it might be bad, but actually, so if I get something, I'm like catching it early. Whereas you will not know (laughs) that you're dying and that's very (laughs) stressful. And obviously both of them aren't that helpful. It's better to be a bit more pragmatic, but that's, I guess, kind of what you're saying that there's, and also I do think it's that spectrum thing of, um, Sorry, I just whilst I was thinking about it, you know, when you're saying about how, God, if they're not there and they're there, I was totally like that. And now I was thinking about the other day, I used to be so stressed if someone like didn't message me back straight away. And now I'm just so chill. And it must either be, I think it's in this relationship has healed me. Or I think I did a lot of work after mm. a relationship and went into that self-introspective yes. thing. But also, if you're stressed when someone doesn't message you, it depends where you are in that relationship, right? If you're in the early stages of obsessional so mm. another thing I talk about yes. is that there are different types of love which I don't think people recognize enough and it annoys me because the word love is used to describe everything and many things which aren't love including lust so basically you have lust early love and then the longer term friendship love that makes relationships mm. last in lust and early love everything about your body and brain is designed to make you obsessed with that person I mean it's literally like taking amphetamines in the way that the brain operates the same part of the brain is engaged that has driven driven or drove drove I should know that um (laughs) drove rats to opt for starvation Mm. um so it's really powerful and that and and you see serotonin levels similar to that seen in people with OCD so it's really obsessive and so in that stage I think it's normal that you would think why haven't they replied yeah that's That's not a sign that you have an anxious attachment style or had an anxious attachment style that is just your body doing what it is designed to do to get us to survive as a species but maybe later on down the line when all of that excitement has chilled out if you're still wondering why (laughs) then maybe you're veering into anxious you remind me now of that um that beginning with that lust and the early love that's exactly what you're sold up and like packaged and sold up when you're a teenager so Mm. you think you're going to fall in love with someone and you're still going to be snogging their face off well (laughs) into your 70s that's what I thought and I remember when you do first get into that relationship and honeymoon periods whatever that is can last for a really really long time so when it suddenly stops you're like oh I hate them why do I what's going on and actually it's just that that those hormones and things are wearing off you do talk about whether or not, I can't remember if you conclude this but you talk about whether or not um is there a reason for the certain time span of the yeah um, yeah mythical honeymoon period did you I can't yeah remember now. so some argue that this early love thing is there to make you hang around just long enough to bring the children up. Mm. But I don't really buy that because, first of all, we don't really know how long it lasts. Depending on what you're measuring, you come up with different times. Um, but let's say it's two years, which I think it can be shorter and longer, depending. Um, I don't think children are very independent at, at two. two. <laughs> so if it, that was its purpose, it should stick around a whole lot mm. longer. Um, but then, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't buy that. Personally. So I remember reading, have you read Homo sapiens? I'm assuming yes. we have. So I feel like in that, he says that, um, was it in that? Well, basically, I think before we, because we were on all fours, this is a really long-winded way of getting this. <laughs> so before, when we used to give birth, when we were on all fours, our gestation period was longer. So when we gave yeah. birth, our babies were more developed than they are now. So they can't really do much yeah, when they yeah, pop yeah. out now. So I think maybe but maybe if that was the evolutionary thing, back then, two would have been, they would have been a bit more crawly or oh, walky. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No. No but trip. then we stood up and then our pelvises got smaller and we yeah, had to give yeah. birth. We have to give birth when they're useless, basically. Yeah. yeah. And it's still fucking painful. So that's just yeah. rude. It could have at least evolved a bit <laughs> better so that it doesn't hurt I so much. I agree <laughs> with that. 
Um, but anyway, well, but, uh, yeah, different types of love. That's a really interesting because then, yeah, so the sexy version is the lusty, heart-pounding, can't-breathe, yeah. butterflies yeah, feeling. Yeah. And then I think if I'd read your book when I was 17, I would have been like, no, she's wrong. I'm sorry, I'm not having companionative love. That sounds horrible because yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound... It is the thing of, um, oh, can you tell us about the seven words? Is it seven words for love? Oh, God, I don't know if I'll remember them. What, the Greek ones? Yeah, because this is really interesting. So, oh, God, what I remember. There's eros, philia. So eros is kind of romantic. Philia is friendship, basically. Um, Pragma, which is sort of longer term. Oh, God, I I should know this. Uh, Like pragmatic love. Mm. I may have made that up. Um, Makes sense. So I've done three. Then there's agape, which is sort of unconditional, general loving love for ludus, which is playful love between that you might see in between early lovers or siblings. I find that it was yeah. early lovers or siblings is a bit weird. That is weird. Um, and then two more, and I can't remember. Storge, I think that's how you say it. I can't remember what that one is. And then there's one more, and there's seven. But there's so many times like that when it's the English terrible. language fails more than... So we have so many words, but for really useless things. Yeah, I know. And yeah, then, like, yeah. other countries have amazing words. Like, in German, they have, like, a really, like, I want to fuck you or something. They have, yeah. like, one word for that. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> is it just... Uh. <laughs> I don't know. Or, or, I always see things for this where they're, like, they can explain language better. And it is weird because we have so many words and we just use the same ones and often not very well. Yeah. Well, I interviewed this guy who had a really excellent beard and the <laughs> deepest voice I've ever heard in my life, and he was Swiss-German, and I interviewed him in Switzerland. And he was telling me, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, ich liebe dich means oh, yes. I love you, but ich hardigan, God knows if I said that right, um, means <laughs> I like you. And and so you'll use ich hardigan for quite a long time, and to move to... And, and it doesn't mean just like, I like you. Mm. It means I like you with the potential of something more, maybe. Right. Um, and then ich liebe dich is, okay, that's it. I full on love you. And he was like, you know what? You don't say ich liebe dich until it's quite a commitment to say that. So you you stick with the first one for quite a while. We don't have that, you know. No. I have people saying, you know, oh, it's been two months and so-and-so hasn't said they love me. And I'm like, what? I personally think that's very wise. <laughs> but I was thinking about this the other day. It's weird how... I can't, I don't know if we always do this, but me and my boyfriend started going out before we'd said I love you. And I was like, oh, is that weird, actually, that you commit to someone before you know that you love? Because what, it's oh, the very, interesting. it's interesting, isn't it, like, why we decide. I remember getting so excited about saying I love you to, like, my first boyfriend. I was, like, buzzing about it. I was like, I can't freaking wait. <laughs> and it is weird. It must be the chemicals, because you do suddenly just go, oh, I'm going to say it. And you, it wants to come out of your mouth without you even, yeah, I remember trying not to say it so many times. And it, it must just be that we don't know what else to do with all these feelings. Yeah. And it is, it's like an automatic response. It's not yeah. conscious, yeah. really, is it? no. I'm working on a book about love for teenagers and it's going to be illustrated. And I was trying to think of a... It's not going to come across that funny now that I've said this. You should never say this is going to be funny. Anyway, I was trying to think of a funny illustration to communicate this problem. And so I was like, well, maybe you have an illustration of two people and one says, I love you. And the other's like, thanks, that's really nice. What kind of love are we talking here? Do you know what I mean? Because basically, people say, I love you. What are they? What do they mean? Mm. Like, I fall in love. What does that mean? And I don't know whether I'm a pedant or whether it was law that taught me to be really pedantic or I'm born <laughs> like it. But I think there's so much ambiguity about mm. it and it's annoying. So, you know, uh, two months in, you love someone. How do you know? It, you can you can perhaps accurately say that you have early romantic love <laughs> for that person. I do not think you can accurately say, 
I know that we share long-term friendship and values, yes. that our attachment systems are compatible, that you are categorically not abusive and not just being really charming as many abusers are at the start. You know, I believe that we will have a really, we share, you know, we are compatible. You have my best interests at heart. You know, you yeah. are prepared to be vulnerable enough to commit and be intimate. You have the same sort of commitment ideas that I have, that you can do that in the first two months when you're basically on coke. Yeah. <laughs> and you have projected onto this person everything that you've ever could possibly mm. imagine would be great. That is one of the funny, it's so true. Then as that like honeymoon period starts to go away, you suddenly think, why did I not think that was annoying? That's so yeah, annoying. Yeah, like yeah, how could yeah. you? And that, well, it's so fascinating, isn't it? What, so that protectiveness, then, so what was the reason, I can't remember now, what was the reason behind why we fall in love? You, oh, so the idea is you, we fall in, we have lust mm. uh, to reproduce and we fall in early love to stick around long enough to bring the kids up. For the baby. Evolutionary psychologists do not, as far as I'm aware, have an explanation for how this relates to people who aren't straight. And, right. And that's a problem I have a lot with evolutionary psychology yeah. generally. Um, but, yeah, that's the purpose of it. But the problem is when you say fall in love, I think sometimes people fall in lust and think it's falling in love, you know? Totally. And so, and I think lust and love are quite ambiguous because I think, I also think there are different types of lust and this is something philosophers talk about. So Immanuel Kant is like, lust is gross, you're using people. <laughs> oh, that's really weird. Don't yeah. do it. Whereas Thomas Hobbes thinks, no, lust can be meaningful. You know, you can care about the other person and want to pleasure them and derive enjoyment mm. from pleasuring them. And that means that that type of lust is meaningful and that can feel like love, you know. I think there's a lot of um, linguistic ambiguity. Definitely. But I also think if you're talking about these things in a vacuum, it's fine. So you're like, this is this love and this is this. But then you put it out into the wide world. Because I do hate it when people try to use, I know I did a bit earlier, but when they use like evolutionary reasoning for anything and you're like, fine, but we live in a capitalist, socially, ideologically, completely different world than, yeah. th than we did when we were evolving yeah. from apes. So what I find really interesting is, as well as all the hormonal and all the psychological things, on the flip side of that, in the kind of societally in, imposed version, what's to say that we haven't even had any of those chemical synapse reactions? And some people haven't even felt that at all, but they've been conditioned to believe that what they've entered into is, in fact, love, when actually there's not even any benefit to it because it's, there's so much outside of it. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and something, something I find very interesting is the idea that you grow... So, okay, there's a thing called the intergenerational transmission of divorce. So people whose parents divorce are more likely to divorce themselves. Oh, wow. It doesn't mean they will divorce. It just means they're more likely. So why does that happen, right? We don't know. All you can do is get the numbers and then hypothesize, essentially. And one hypothesis is, well, if your parents divorce, then you haven't learned the pro-relationship skills that would help you not divorce, right? So, like arguing well or sharing right. chores or whatever but another one is that you come to believe that divorce is okay as an option and so therefore your commitment is less of a commitment in the first place mm. but I think and, the, and there's the same same point about attachment so if your parents have an insecure attachment style you are very likely to have an insecure attachment style but but why is that and it's 
it's a bit sticky because you have all of the external um, stuff going on, like you were saying, like capitalism, like the decline of community, mm. because now there's way more pressure on relationships. There is a point. I'm just going a really long way around. No, 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 I love that. Um, so there's, you know, you used to... Uh, you used to have a whole village, basically, uh, who would provide you with emotional support, a sense of safety, but also keep you in the relationship because there'd be stigma associated with leaving. But no one lives in villages anymore. Mm. And we're way more mobile. There was a higher amount of religion. And now people don't believe in religion as much. So they've kind of almost passed that on to love. You know, love is now basically capable of human transcendence and it can fix everything like mm. God used to or whatever. So there's all these bigger picture things, but there's also the smaller picture stuff like your parents. And so the very long-winded conclusion or point that I was trying to get to, geez, uh, is that sometimes I think if your parents had an unhappy or unhealthy relationship, that either with themselves or with you, that can be very, very deep down what feels like home mm. to you. And so that when you go to look for love, it's all very well talking about definitions and stuff. And I do think that that's helpful. But sometimes it's this deep, dark, swirly stuff uh, yeah. that is driving you. And being with someone who is securely attached and capable of intimacy and commitment won't feel like home. Mm. And actually, that's that can be more difficult to be actually in a relationship where someone does care mm. and wants to be with you and is happy to see your slightly less attractive sides and still be there yeah. and to support you when things go wrong um, can be far more threatening than to, to, to replicate what feels like home, even if that feeling like home is really not very good or healthy. I totally agree with that. I think that especially, but my parents used to argue quite a lot. So when my boyfriend, I remember when we first started out, he didn't want to, I would wait for him to tell me off things and he'd be like, oh. And I, that would almost feel more uncomfortable than someone getting annoyed at me because that's what you're used to. And it is really true. It can be almost more affronting mm. and actually make you feel really uncertain because it un, it's like new terrain. Yeah. Like, how do I navigate this? I don't really know when people have it. It's great, but it's, it's, it, is, it can be really hard to learn. Um, and the other thing I think is interesting about the divorcing, I think I was on a panel um, talk about something. I don't know what we we're talking about. But one of the things they said was that it's, Divorce rates are higher, but it's because people are, it's actually better because it means more women especially have more freedom to escape unhappy or abusive marriages. And people aren't trapped into archaic versions of, you know, matrimony where the woman stays at home and things. So divorce and legislation around love is really interesting because how does that impact it, even the timeline of thinking like, I've been with my boyfriend two years, 25. So maybe if we stay together in four years, probably get and get. And like that without knowing subconsciously like so we'll get married at 30 and then you have this like idea in your head of what potentially might happen how does that obscure your natural um reaction to them because if you're then suddenly tying it into this newfangled timeline going back to your <laughs> panel point mm. i think there are obviously some mega benefits of women being able to walk away when relationships are horrific and in the past and it's still in some countries where divorce is not okay or divorce can happen, but basically costs everything to the women and not much to the man, um, then people stay in really horrific relationships mm. and that, or they hate each other and live completely separate emotional lives or, you know, it's not, it's not great. I'm not saying that people shouldn't divorce. Yes. But to the extent that divorce is increasingly seen as an, a viable mm. slash easy option to the extent that you remove barriers to commitment, the easier it is to 
leave your commitments, the weaker those commitments are. And so there's like this whole psychology and philosophy of commitment, which I went into and in the book, and I love because obviously as an avoidant, I was a commitment phobe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, how does this commitment thing work? Um, and the theory is that you have personal commitment, which is I want to be here because this is fun. <laughs> and then practical commitment, which is, I kind of want to be here because I can't leave because we have a house and that sofa I really like and we share and who would get it if we broke up? And what about the dog? And, and also, uh, I've invested a lot. We've got loads of shared friends. What would happen to them? Um, you know, and yeah. also when I look outside, you know, I've invested in this and also when I look at the other options, whether that's being single or with someone else, it's not that great, you know? Um, so commitment isn't just a simple thing, yes. right? And divorce and how easy it is impacts this practical commitment and so the i and and a lot of philosophers believe that your beliefs around commitment impact the kind of commitments you make so if you think that you're getting married but i had a guy come on to me and he was like uh i had a boyfriend at the time and i was like right okay yeah i've got a boyfriend and he's like um yeah well look you know his mum had remarried for the fifth time and he said my view of marriage is if it doesn't work out, I'll just get married again. And I remember thinking at that time, and this was before I'd started really delving into the book, if that's your view, how does that impact your commitment? Mm. Is that different to someone who thinks, I am going to marry forever, you know? How does that impact, yeah. like, the very minutiae of, uh, this is a bit tricky now. We have kids. I'm really tired. We're not having much sex. Uh, we aren't having much fun, actually, because we're not sleeping more than two hours in a go. Yeah. And there's just dirty clothes and nappies vom everywhere. <laughs> ah! Uh, then maybe you're more likely to leave if you don't, if you think that divorce there's is... There's no value is, in yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but... But commitment is linked to the dark swirly stuff um, mm. and linked to much bigger things. And so I think that, yes, it's a good thing that women can walk away. But there are also downsides to the weakening of commitment. But then I guess that comes brings to the point of like, what's the... Sorry, and men. Yeah, oh, yeah of course. Because men get yeah. in abusive relationships yeah, yeah, yeah. too. And just, just things just don't work out and yeah, you should yeah. be able to leave. But then... By that virtue or that kind of recognition of commitment, we are kind of saying that marriage is the ultimate means of achieving commitment or that without marriage. Yes and no, there are different types. So you could go for a civil partnership or, you know, I interviewed this brilliant person who was more committed to her partner and they weren't married than someone I interviewed who, so she was like one of the most committed people I've ever met. And this other person, I would have guessed that she and her partner were securely attached, like it oozed from their pores, not scientific <laughs> assessment. And then the other person I interviewed, um, who proposed in a rainstorm, ironically, uh, said that he didn't know if it would last for life. He was a realist. So you have one person mm. who's definitely now married, who says he doesn't know if it will last for life. He's a realist. And then you have someone who hasn't married but is determined that this is it forever. Like, which is the bigger commitment, you know? Mm. So I think there's the practical side of it, but it's also the beliefs. What do you yeah. believe? But one, um, marriage isn't, you know, I don't think everyone needs to get married, but I do think that everyone needs to, well, 
my dream would be for everyone to really reflect on what commitment they personally want, you mm. know, and looking into the dark, swirly stuff and really thinking about it. Because often when two people make a commitment, it might not be the same, you know. Yeah. Um, and also, very interestingly, there was research that found that um, people who live together before getting married are more likely to divorce. Really? Yeah. And I was so surprised by this that Me I went too. into a research rabbit hole to try and understand it. Basically, the idea is that you have... Like, deciding to marry someone is quite a big thing. Mm. You're like, okay, I'm going to marry you. This is big. Uh, do I like you? <laughs> uh, do we uh, do we get on? Do we share values? Um, whereas there's a lower bar to moving in with someone. People might move in because it's expensive to live separately yeah. or because they don't like carrying knickers and a toothbrush in their handbag. <laughs> so you move in with someone and then you buy a sofa and you buy a dog. And then, you know, before you know it, it's been like a few years. All your mates are actually going out now. So it's not like you've got that many single people to go and get lashed with. And so you're like, oh, okay, well, we'll just get married then, you know? Yeah. And that is a different decision to the whole, okay, shall we get married? It's more of a we may. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As well. Uh, that's so, do you know what's so funny? My boyfriend and I were actually talking about this the other day, just not about us, but just generally. And he was saying how, he, he was basically saying the same thing. He was like, I actually think moving in together is a, is more of a big deal than getting married. I don't know if that's what you're saying, but it was interesting. So I was saying the same thing. I am lucky that I am not in a position where I have to move in with my boyfriend because of um, financial reasons, yeah. which I'm very grateful for because I've noticed that that is a trend, especially yeah. nowadays. Yeah. You have to move in. And I, not being an avoidant, just being someone who does that moment space. Because I was reading this, I was like, I always say that, but I don't think it's my attachment style. I think I just do like my own space. If they can be separate, I don't know. Yeah, I was yeah, doing yeah. a lot of interrogation. <laughs> So I do love living with him and I think all the time, thank God I don't, because I'm not ready to move in with him, but I do understand that if I didn't have that financial ability or just the situations that we're in right now, I potentially would move in through. And then you would, as I was saying, you just follow this ladder of things and whether or how conscious you are of doing that, I don't I don't know. But he was just saying, that I actually just think that, yeah, I don't know, because I think marriage is bigger, but then what would you think? Yeah, that kind of is different from what you're saying. But. Well, so I moved in with my now husband before getting married and so it, had you you'd done the research before no I actually didn't know that okay, piece of research good. I that's found that stressful. out retrospectively I was like oh no <laughs> um, and well I can tell you from an avoidant listening to my attachment perspective which was the bigger commitment and it was marriage because I found moving in stressful but I thought we can just not live together that's okay <laughs> but there was a marriage thing like so he proposed in Australia in Byron Bay this really beautiful hotel like in the middle of nowhere uh, but he actually didn't propose it there he made me walk to this beach that was covered in jellyfish and it was a bit gross but oh. <laughs> so surrounded by this gross jellyfish he was like do you want to marry me and I had such a physical reaction of stress to that. There was no, like, joy. It was no, it's not like what you would imagine in the films, right? Mm. And thankfully, I'd got to know my avoidant attachment system quite well by this point. And I was like, oh, hello, avoidant attachment system. <laughs> and basically, for me, in my body, it feels a bit like, ah! Do you know what I mean? Claustrophobic. Uh, yeah, and like, tense! Ah! 
And that's how I felt. And I really struggled to say yes. And then I did eventually say yes. And he was like, yay! And I was like, oh my God. And then we went back to the room and he was like, we should call our families. And the idea of calling our families was horrific to me. Anyway, we called our families. They were really overjoyed. I was still, ah! And then uh, I was able to say, I'm really sorry. This isn't what you would like, I imagine, from a proposal. This is my avoidant attachment system flaring up. And it did so for two weeks. I mean, it chilled out, but it was pretty hyperactivated. And then it was fine. Mm. And I love him. And we've been married for years. And we have a child. And I want to be with him forever. Oh. But I just had to get through that. And I think that, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that's going to be the same for everyone. But I do think that with attachment stuff, it can be very in your body. Mm. And in your body is a good way of, um, for me at least, listening to it. Because your head is, you know, mm. your head is, my head would have said, no, I want to marry you. <laughs> Whereas my body was just going, ah. It wasn't saying no or yes. It was yeah, just going, just ah, reacting. ah. I think one of the biggest problems is, especially because of bloody films and stuff, is that you don't see people acting in these different ways that yeah. every proposal is like oh my god beautiful yes, perfect yes. tears and like amazing they don't look at the ring I definitely would look at the ring <laughs> I'd like let's see what we've got and then I say and I'm joking but you know it's just like so it's so fake but the problem is that when you then do you have these weird reactions things I, I can't even think that but I know that I've had reactions stuff where you're like I am so abnormal why am I reacting like this because you don't know where that's coming from if you knew like you said you can deal with it think about it whereas otherwise you get the double whammy of oh my god why am I going to be sick of being proposed to I'm a psycho but also not knowing where it's come from and I do think that mainstream media and the, the stories that we get told of love yeah or whatever the kind of love it is drive me up the wall it's just so monotone drive me up the wall but also thank god that I had been doing everything that I'd done like both for the book, but also personally, like, digging into what the hell was going on there. Because I could easily have walked away. And I'm, he is amazing. I'm so thankful. <laughs> Honestly, I think, what are you doing right <laughs> to me? I have a nightmare. And I think that there's a lot, there could be a lot of shame, you know. Mm. And for a while, I, I couldn't admit to that. And, and now I have to, like, I have to admit to that. You know, the whole point I've written this book is because I, and I'm doing more on love is because I think that we're not having helpful conversations about it. We need to change the way mm. we think about it. And so I have to say, it was really awkward when he proposed because it was really stressful. <laughs> but like, imagine that you that that you that you that we were friends and that you hadn't read this book and that you know we met like in a, at school and I was sitting down in your bedroom and you were like, so what's up? And I was like, well. My boyfriend proposed and my body basically convulsed and I felt so stressed out for two weeks that I almost can't look at him. You'd probably say, I don't think you should marry him. Definitely, you know I mean? yeah. And, 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 and I would probably only admit that to you and absolutely no one else because it's so shameful, yeah. you know. The idea that I've been fed, that most of us have been fed, is that we should say, yes. And also go with this idea of gut instinct yeah. and you'll know when you know. Your gut is often wrong. If you are anxious or avoidant, and I mean, this is just attachment to it. There's a whole other mm. world of gut stuff. Like, your gut can be wrong. Your gut can be very, very, very unhelpful when yeah. it comes to relationships. So trusting your gut is a glib, unhelpful phrase that annoys me. Also, trusting your friends. Now you said that. Thank you for all the <laughs> advice that we give. One of my, like, we'll be all there. And all of us are like, no, no, I think. Yes, and what yes, I think yes, is that yes. you should. Yeah. And actually, we're, 
probably one projecting. I honestly, I'm the best Agnew you can ever get. I really put my work in. I try to be really objective. I think this is not coming from my point because I would do this, but for you. And actually, it's probably bullshit. But it is interesting how we all have these very prescriptive ideas of love. I'll talk to one of my girlfriends who's got a relationship with that, and I think, oh, God, well, I wouldn't want to be like that. And then I think, actually, she probably looks at my relationship and thinks, yeah. that looks fucking boring or whatever yeah, they think. Yeah, yeah. And I think that knowing that love can be very different because I completely agree that feeling of also it's it's scary to watch other people be in relationships which you think are unhelpful but to that person it might that might be the right thing that they yeah. need like yeah well also so one thing I think is missed often is that the way that you are let I'm going to use attachment theory again because it's just an easy shorthand way of describing this but there are a million variables if you are in a relationship and you're not sure whether to break up and I'm avoidant, I will say, you should break up. Mm. Whereas if you're in a relationship and you're not sure whether to break up and I'm anxious, I'll say, oh, you should stick together. Are you sure? Because maybe, maybe it's something else, you know? Or, so true. And if if your partner um, doesn't message you and you're talking to me and I'm your friend and I am, I keep saying, if I'm your friend, can we be friends? Yeah, and I then, know. <laughs> I was going to say, a hypothetical moment. <laughs> Yeah, so you can be. If you're, thanks, thanks. Uh, I'll send a formal friend request later. Thank you. Uh, so you say to me, what do you think? He hasn't messaged and I'm avoidant. I'll be like, don't worry about it, mate. You know, like, anyway, let's go on and talk about something else. Whereas if I'm anxious, I'd be, I might, I'm more inclined to say, oh, maybe he is cheating. I did notice the mm. other day that he scratched his eyebrow and therefore, you know. So I think that the way that your friends respond is very dependent on not only their attachment style, but, like, everything they believe. Totally. And you project things. Although with the cheating thing, none of us have ever been wrong. <laughs> Every time oh. you think cheating's happening, it's always happening. <gasps> always predicted. I can always so smell it in the air. The, I spoke to the lady uh, that I interviewed in Ibiza, who was in her 80s, and she was talking about... I said, what would you advise to someone who thinks their partner is cheating? And she said, if it's a boyfriend you know, assuming it's a heterosexual relationship, it might be LGBTQ+, so, you know, boyfriend-girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, if they are um, cheating, then you should say, I'm not happy with that, and I'm going to walk away. But if you would like to change and not do it ever again, then I will consider staying, but I'm not going to tolerate this. But, she said, if it was a husband, then I'd think very carefully, because I think you'd be really hard-pushed to find a relationship without its indiscretions. And actually, she's right. Mm. And I genuinely spent days and days and days looking into research at the British Library because that is a controversial statement, but it's true. I it, I found that really hard to read that bit. And also, the, and you did another bit about the levels of infidelity. So for me, if you text someone else, I'd break up with you. I don't know what, I'm just like, no, that's a breaking my trust. But then I think if I was trying to thought play this too. If we'd been married for a while and you wanted to have an affair and you told me, I think I'd potentially be like, well, if you want to sleep someone else and I know about it, I think for me it would always be the lying that mm. would kill me. Yeah, yeah. I actually don't. But then I also asked my boyfriend about this. I said she's got a husband who's had for three years and she knew and all stuff. And he was like, well, you can't say. You have no idea what her life's like. And I was like, fine. Because I was like, I'd obviously just leave. He's like, she's probably got kids. She's got this. Like, There's so much infrastructure around that. It's very different from being 25 and in a relationship where you don't live together and have no joint belongings. But also, you're really hot. <laughs> oh. And you're really young. And so you could go out and find lots of other people. That's true. But she's now in her 80s. And she doesn't want to go dating. I said, like, why are you in this, 
you know, did you consider leaving? I said. And I tried to do it in the most unjudgmental way possible because I don't know what her life is. And she said, well, I don't want to be lonely. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's a valid or invalid reason. Unvalid? Invalid. Mm. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I'm not saying that's an invalid reason, but... I think that decisions are very different. Like if you have children, for mm. example, let's say, so infidelity is an umbrella term, right? Uh, infidelity covers a snog on a night out, a one night stand after your parent has died, uh, a protracted seven year affair with your best mate mm. and a secret child, right? These are all just infidelity. If you have three children and you're married to someone who is otherwise a really excellent partner and yeah. they have a clean track record all the time and then they snog someone do you walk away because you're not just thinking about you now there's kids involved yeah that's true and I looked in this isn't in the book and maybe it should be but I looked at it <laughs> afterwards there was this fabulous study of all a lot of marital therapists across the US I think all of them were messaged and some of them took part uh, about whether they thought people should admit to their infidelity. And only 45% said they thought they should if the infidelity was over with. Only 45%. And so I think this idea that, you know, you should always admit mm. is something that is controversial. And also their opinion changed depending whether there were children involved. You know, as you're saying that, I've just realised what mine, when I'm thinking about it, is the shame. And I think it's the indignity or how it would feel to me to know that my partner had done something behind my back and other people knew. I wonder if that's where my yes. issue would come. Yes. I almost wonder if they went and snogged someone and I never found out. Yeah. Don't think I'd mind, which is weird. Whereas yeah. if I found text messages four years later that they'd had a one night, I think that would blow my world apart. But would that be more a narcissism or like a problem about my self-worth do you know what I mean the, yeah, it's interesting yeah. what would catalyze like make you yeah. stress because I do think sometimes maybe it is best not to say because as you say when you read stories about infidelity or even in programs where people have affairs when you know the person and you know their storyline you can often be like well I kind of get yeah. it like I feel sorry for you I found myself feeling sorry for white straight cis men having affairs in tv programs I'm not happy about it <laughs> I'm like why do I like him this is horrible <laughs> This is not what I want to do. But you it's always more complicated than that. Yeah, and I think, and like I'm in no way saying if your partner cheats on you, you should just suck it up. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is I don't think it's black and white. Yeah, I agree. And yes, there'll be shame, probably. But there's shame about everything. You know, really, mm. we create shame about everything you want to create shame about. And part of that is, you know, if that happens and there's shame, point them at the stats. In the infidelity chapter. <laughs> Go read that, my yeah. friends. Um, Your partner's probably cheated on you multiple times. <laughs> so let's be a bit less judgmental of others. Yeah, that is true. Um, I was just thinking about one thing we haven't covered. I don't know if you talk about this in the book. I can't remember now. We've been talking about love, being in love, being in relationships. What about the flip side of that, which a lot of women, especially in my age, up to mid-30s, tend to be more stressed about, which is not being in love and that scramble to find this ever-growing, ever-green beauty of love, which, as we've discussed, is always much more complicated than it is in the movies. Um, when you were writing this book, did you find that 
I know you talk about the things that people look for in a relationship and whether or not that's kindness or friendship and that kindness, I agree, should always kind of be near the top. But how much are people just endlessly searching for love in of itself? Do you think that's one of the fundamentals that humans want? Yeah, and it's something that comes up a lot in heterosexual and LGBTQ plus research that even though there's a lot of divorce and, uh, uh, well, divorce has increased on the whole internationally over the past 40 years, although it's sort of tailed off. And marriage on the whole has decreased, although mm. obviously there's country variations. Um, there is a pretty robust tendency for everyone to want lifelong love. Mm. Although there are some people, some studies of single people around the world that suggest that those single people don't want to be in a relationship. You know, in Japan, for example, it's such a problem that they're calling it celibacy syndrome because they're just not getting in relationships, not reproducing, and they're just going to have a demographic time bomb. Um, I think... In some, there was a UK study and a US study where single people were asked why they were single. And I love that some of the reasons are like, I like not being nagged. <laughs> I like spending my money as I would like to. I feel a sense of achievement about coping on my own. And another thing that I thought was very interesting was the idea that people from across the world, like a single mum from France to a single lady in Colombia was like, you know what? People think that I should be in a relationship, but you know what? This is the Colombian lady speaking. I love her. She's like, is society going to pay for a psychologist when my relationship breaks up? Is society going to pay for me to bring up the children when the relationship falls apart? I don't think so. Um, and the single parent French lady said, you know what? There's still this idea that you should find someone mm -hmm. and be married in your 30s. It's like a 1950s idea mm -hmm. and it is still there. And then there was some research, because um, when we talk about culture and media, it's so nebulous and I like evidence. And I found this piece I really liked, which was that sociologists looked over rom-coms. I can't remember the details, a certain number that made a certain amount or whatever. And basically they found that single people were generally represented as being really miserable. <laughs> well, there was an amazing article the other day that said that single women, I can't remember exactly now, but basically were more happy than married women at the same age or something. Yes, no, that was flawed. The guy, that article quoted a guy who misquoted uh, public US survey data. And it thankfully it was public US survey data, so he could be called up on it. He, it, that misunderstanding was based on the fact that he understood a description. And I can't remember what the exact wording was. It was something like... That's so sad because it was me and all my friends have shared sorry. that article. Sorry, mate. <laughs> Even I'm in a relationship. He's I'm like, now, single women are so much better. No, no, he's retracted it. Um, the reprints of the book are being corrected. Um, yeah, it's... Basically, there's a statement um, in the study that said something like, partner not present. And he thought that it meant that the partner had left the room. So he thought that unmarried women, oh. when their partner had left the room, said, oh you know, I'm really unhappy. When actually, when their partner came back in the room, they were really happy. But that's not what it meant. It meant they're not present because they are separated. So they're actually not in a relationship. Oh. So they are in the fresh, painful, just <laughs> broken up phase. Right. And so that's why they're unhappy. Not because their partner has just walked out of the room. Oh, okay. Because it wasn't, it wasn't, people weren't, that's not how the the research was conducted. Anyway, so no, I'm afraid to say <laughs> that on the whole, research from around the world has found that people who are in long-term 
relationship is generally it's generally married versus single research because marriage is very easy to measure because people have to register it that married people are happier than single people mm. and I'm not saying that everyone should therefore go and get married because that research is flawed because marriage being married and being single is like just so many different things are yeah. covered in that being in a really miserable abusive relationship that's married you know yeah. being recently bereaved and devastated at the loss of your partner of five decades that's single or being single because you've like two years into being free from someone who really eroded your self-esteem mm -hmm. and you are delighted not to be with them and you are really happy or being single when you're in your 20s and young and hot versus single because your partner has just cheated and left you for the person with your three children and you're single. You know, single mm. is a big thing. It covers everything, like so much stuff. And then um, married, you know, so when we're just going, oh, married people are happier than single people, it's, you know, it's a bit Much naive. More yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is really good for you, basically, I think. To I mean, be, not I think. The evidence yeah. says it's good for you to make commitments. People are happier and healthier in long-term relationships unless they're really, really dysfunctional. <laughs> basically. <laughs> There's literally so many things I want to ask you about and I can't even remember what bits we haven't said. One of the things um, that I literally found so funny but also heartbreaking just because it's just so fucking annoying uh, is the bit about how men will always want to date someone that's younger than them yeah, and then the so older annoying. they get, the younger they get. So basically they're always trying to date yeah. someone that's around 25 to 30. So when they're like 25, they'll date a 25 year old. But when they're 40, they will also date a 25-year-old. Unfortunately, it's younger than 25. Oh, God. <laughs> it, but the weird thing is, if you put this in reverse, and I spoke to someone about this before, but I now, even as a 25-year-old, wouldn't go near a 19-year-old boy. I would no. be like, that is awful. He could be my... I would feel like I was mothering him. I'd probably be really patronising. We wouldn't get on at all. Like, how... Uh, so, that age gap I can't do, and that's not even that much. I don't... I just... It's so weird to me. I know, and I also find it a bit depressing, but... I try and comfort myself by <laughs> thinking that was looking at online dating data. Oh, yeah. Admittedly, like thousands and thousands of people. And it wasn't what is painful is it wasn't an experiment, right? This was the co-founder of OKCupid, Christian Rodder, looking at actual data, actual people actually <gasps> using online dating. Um, so that's suboptimal. Uh, but... I like to think <laughs> that, yes, that age thing is a factor when you're swiping and there's a kind of commodification mm. of people. But then if you're talking about, like, friends of friends, then maybe knowing someone might, you would hope, supersede the young thing. But it is definitely, I think, a bit depressing. How does online, how does online dating impinge our ability to have, find or improve? love it's an interesting one um i think it does both it's a route to market so you meet more people mm. it's particularly important i think for lgbtq plus because one study i mean obviously the studies funded by online dating companies find a higher rate than this but <laughs> a more neutral study found that 22 percent of couples met online so that's oh. third after three friends of friends and in public places like bars or restaurants um Although I know loads of people that would be terrible at picking up in public places. Anyway, um, so online dating, very helpful. But for LGBTQ+, it's 60% meet online. Wow. And that's because you get, it's a thin market, mm. right? That's what economists would call it. Um, that said, so you, you get more choices, more options. However, 
it might encourage you to filter for things that you might not want to filter for. Mm. Like, oh, I want someone who is this height. Does that matter? Does no. it? You know, I want someone who hikes. Does that really matter? And then not provide you with the filters for things like, I would like someone kind. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And also that I would always find that I'd always be shocked by who I fancied because if you'd asked me to write down who I fancied on a piece of paper... It would be a very, that would probably look a bit like my boyfriend, to be fair, but, but personality-wise, I would fancy, and I'd think, why do I fancy him? Especially as a teenager, you'd be like, not supposed to fancy, what is it that I find attractive? And they were just, well, one, pheromones, or just people just, you just get on with people. And as you say, if you're like ticking off all these extra bits of people that you think you're going to want, you very, I think we just don't know what we want a lot of the time. And I do think it is a lot more chemical than you realise when you're really attracted to someone, you meet them. Yes, I think it is chemical. And I also think there is that kind of deep down what feels like home mm. stuff. So, you know, I think there's stuff that is very difficult to analyse and break down. Like, this is a really weird example, but I interviewed someone in their 80s. He was called Noel. And I stopped him on the beachfront with his wife who had severe dementia and there was something about him, and it's the only time it's happened in my life. And poor Noel doesn't know this, so if he listens to this... <laughs> Hi, Noel. He'll hear. Hi, Noel. Um, there was something that reminded him of my grandfather who brought me up, who was one of the, my parent figures, and who died when I was young. And there was something about it that was just... It was so, like, lovely to be with him. I, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. And I have interviewed people, like, one woman who lost two... And that's never happened to me before. Mm. It's not like I meet loads of... People think, oh, you're like a dead person I once loved. <laughs> I still love. Um, one woman who uh, who married one man who died, then married another man who died, for the first six months or so stalked someone, full on stalked, because he reminded her of her dead husband. You oh know, my gosh. I think there are some things that you can't really pin down. Yeah. And then there are things you can pin down. I want someone with money. Yeah. I want someone with big muscles. And then there's other stuff that is that we are all susceptible to, mm. like um, alcohol makes people feel more attractive. Who knew? And <laughs> rock music, for example. Uh, and having an adequate temperature in the room. <laughs> so I think there are lots of different things going on. Mm. And then, you know, there's the very individual stuff. You know, I'm avoid, I'm anxious, you're avoidant. You make, you activate my attachment system and that's exciting for me. I know? also remember reading, it was in Sarah Pascoe's book, Animals. Have you read that? No, but I've been recommended Oh, it. it's really good. What is it? The, the autobiography of the female anatomy or something. And there's a bit in there where she talks about, I, you probably talk about this as well, but like the pheromone stuff where you sweat and if you like someone's sweat. Do you talk about that? Yeah, so pheromones. I have been chatting to Tristram Wyatt, Dr. Tristram Wyatt at Oxford, because I try and chat about all this stuff with everyone, so I'm not getting it wrong. Pheromones has was, there was loads of evidence behind it, but now it's been discredited. Joking. However, personal scent, there is still some research. Because when it. I started out with this, <laughs> with, I genuinely was trying to like, when he was a bit smelly, <laughs> to see if I liked it. I was like, this is going to be full. I was so cautious to get into this relationship. I was like, I'm not fucking doing it. I'm not going out and something. And I just thought, that's an extra layer of... Is he the one? Smells quite nice. And that's good. Mm. Well, what I find <laughs> weird about that is that, like, so many people plaster themselves with perfume. Oh, I know. And my beloved husband uses a spray deodorant occasionally, although when he does, I literally scream. Oh, I know, that's so bad. And they stink. And that is genuinely repulsive to me. Like, it really offends yeah. my nose. Uh, which, by the way, isn't a Shakespearean insult. <laughs> 
offends my nose. Is it? Uh, yeah. I'm going to start using that. I know. Uh, I, I'm just not like I'm really a fan with Shakespeare. I just wrote a poem about Shakespeare's insults, and now I know loads. And there's some really good ones oh, like, fun. your bum is the best thing about you. <laughs> Why? Oh, I like that's quite... Nowadays, people will be like, yeah. oh, thanks. Can yeah, I yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's You'd really like, funny. thanks. Not I'm offended. <laughs> anyway. um, so... Oh, what was I saying? Um, pheromones disproved, smells. Oh, yeah. deodorant. Oh, deodorant, yeah. And I find it really it offends my nose. I agree. It's really repulsive. But when he doesn't use it, I'm like, oh, hello, husband. Yeah, smells nice. Yeah. And also, this is so funny. This makes me think of it. It's not really related. But you know when you were little, I forgot we did this. It's so true. You would go around the playground and smell jumpers until you worked out which one was yours. Do you remember I doing that? I did not that? play that. That sounds like a good well, game. No, it wasn't a game. It was you took off your jumper to play. And then you'd have to go and find your jumper. And the way oh. you would know whose jumper it was was how it smelt. But Didn't I, you have name tags? Oh, no, I don't know if it didn't have a name. Mm. But how would we know? I don't think I would know my smell now, probably because I'm an adult and I put fake smells on. Well, I know because <laughs> now that I am a writer, I sometimes work in my pyjamas until I go for a swim. Mm. And then by the time I go for a swim, I stink. And I'm That's like, good. oh, I know how I smell. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> okay, the last thing. No, I love it. The last thing I want to ask you, going back to picking up people in bars, is how are you so good at picking up people for your book? Because you just interview <laughs> and people just want to tell you things. Have you always been like that? Was that remotely difficult? Because how many people do you interview? Somewhere between three to 400. Wow. Um, I stopped counting. I feel like I one day should count that up, but I don't know. Um, I got 66 straight yeses, and then my 67 was a no. It was two men <laughs> in a sushi restaurant. And I went on the pavement and cried uh, and thought the whole project was pointless. What did you say to them? Did you go, did you have equipment with you? Yeah, so, but no, no. So basically, I would always say something along the lines of this. And it felt increasingly valid as I went on. Because at the beginning, obviously, I was like, <laughs> it was just amazing. can I interview? Because I've only interviewed one other person <laughs> for a book that I have no book deal for. <laughs> um, whereas, you know, further down the line, it felt way more valid. Um, but I think that's kind of partly something about the creative thing process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You have to kind of just Wing believe it. that you're doing it and do it, you know, instead of think, oh God, I don't, I don't, ah. Um, so I would go up to people in like airports, hospital, buses, parks, planes, ships. I mean, anywhere that you could ask someone, interrupt someone, restaurant, I don't know, cafes, um, people having cigarette breaks from work, you know, everything. And I would say, I met people hiking. I mean, really, everywhere. Um, and I would say, so if I hadn't spoken to them before, because obviously if I'd been hiking with them or met them hiking, and you know, I would know them a little bit. But if I'd met them cold, then I, which is most of the people, I would say, I'm really sorry to bother you. Um, I just wanted to ask, I'm writing a book where I interview strangers around every, across every continent of the world about love because I don't think we have honest enough conversations about it and I think we're getting it wrong. And I would love to interview you. It would be totally anonymous and we could change any specifics. And if you say something you don't want to include, you tell me and we cut it. Um, and it can be as long or as short as you would like. But I think that people could really benefit from your experience. And people generally, I mean, almost everyone said yes. And have they? Have you contacted them? Have they got the book? Yeah. How's so some happened? people, some people didn't give me their details. Like a guy that I interviewed in an American airport, who I so visually remember this. It was like rows of empty seats, and he was just staring, looking out of a window with you know, like the blinding white light and the planes <laughs> taking off, and he was just sitting there. And I mean. There were must have been like hundreds of seats around there. It was just him. And I went up to him and I thought, this is very unlikely. And I said, hi. And I, I asked him and he said, sure. 
And then I interviewed him and it was a very reserved interview and it trans- he was very quiet and slow with his delivery of speech. And then it transpired at the end. He was saying, you know, you can lose love, but love is unlimited. Don't give up on love. Don't close yourself off to it, is what he said. And I said, so it's, have you lost love? And he went, yes, I lost my first wife to cancer. Mm. And then he talked a little bit about it and that he'd found love again and that that was, it feels like a different lifetime and this is another lifetime and he'll probably have more lifetimes. And it was really, it felt really um, generous. It felt like he was not someone that would normally say that. Yeah. And so I thanked him and I said, would you like me to take your contact details just to send you a copy of the book? We'll let you know. And he went, no, thanks. And that's it. And so I can't tell him. That's so sweet. It's almost like he did that because he thought it might help someone else who'd lost love. That's really lovely. Exactly. And I think it does. I think think that, you know, the people, because I have a a chapter about bereavement, and Mm. I think the people in there were so generous. And like Morris, a 95-year-old poet, says, because I was doing this at the same time that my grandma, who had brought me up, had just died. And it was horrific. And I wrote... I basically wrote, genuinely wrote that chapter in tears. And I was kept thinking, this is good. It's going to make it a better chapter. And I met Morris. And he was one of the last interviews I did. Um, and I said, how do you cope with the grief? With the tears in my eyes, feeling like this raw chasm of grief, feeling really like, ah! And he said, well, now I'm actually thankful for it because it, confirms that everything that I believe was valuable about our relationship, even the difficult bits, was true. Mm. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely not there, but hopefully I will be. And it's hope. it provides me with hope. And I think it's really important to provide hope, right? Because mm. I'm basically saying, hi, guys, you'll love people and they'll die. <laughs> Divorce is really likely. You have dark, swirly stuff. Um, but what I'm but what I want to always say is that there's hope. And there is hope. There's mm. so much evidence that there is hope everywhere, in every area of it. You know, infidelity, there's hope. You know, dark, swirly stuff, there's hope. You, there's always hope. You just, I think that the hope partly depends on all of us being more honest about mm. it, but also being prepared to look at the difficult stuff. Because although it's difficult to look at the difficult stuff, and sometimes people definitely need support in looking at the difficult stuff, um, looking at the difficult stuff, can lead to better things. Uh, yeah, and I always think that that thing of getting to know yourself, and I always used to talk about this really now, me kind of like in a really not knowing what I was saying a few years ago, like on Instagram and stuff. And then I actually did self-introduction. And I was like, oh no, this is actually very, very helpful. If you know who you are, it really improves your relationships and helps someone else understand. And like, I didn't really realize the weight of what I was saying. And actually, once you get that down, if everyone was a bit more in touch with yeah. what they need and what they want and who they are, it's not being selfish. It's actually, it's the best thing. It's that putting your oxygen mask on first thing. Yeah. Which is really good. But my worry is that that is not what is being fed to us. No. My worry is that it is all about just finding the right person. Yeah. Or trying to be as perfect or whatever everyone else expects of you. And it's not about looking inward. Mm. And I think a lot of the answers lie looking inward and yeah. looking inward you know for some people those who've had a really great life <laughs> with secure attachment coming out of their nostrils <laughs> happily married you're great looking inward is going to be important but mm. it's going to be more important maybe for someone who has experienced trauma mm. and I think I think also it's that 
even if it's coming from you or you do things, we're all, it's all so cyclical. So like yes. if you've been through trauma, it's not your parents yes. might have treated you really badly, but they've probably went through something. So that it's, it is yeah, almost yeah. more helpful to not put a blame on anything, but just try and stop the cycle. Yeah. Because it's not necessarily yeah. that someone's evil or someone's no. bad or they've treated no. you. The likelihood is they've treated you like that because that's all they knew. Yeah, and exactly. If if there is such a thing as intergenerational transmission of divorce or people are more likely to have an insecure attachment stuff their parents did, then not always, but sometimes or maybe even a lot of the time, people will have, will be the way they are because of things that happened to them. And mm. But there were always choices, right? Like, you know, if your parents... Like if you have an abusive parent and they are still abusive, then you can look at them compassionately and think, okay, here are some reasons why you are the way you are. But you could still also change that. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You can you can have compassion while also Want to making them responsible for totally. their actions. But yeah, oh, amazing. <laughs> Do you, I feel like we literally chatted for hours. Um, <laughs> is there anything else that you particularly wanted to cover? I can't think with, there's anything. Okay, I know. Uh, my concluding thought. I hope it's good enough, <laughs> would be um, that the way that you see, behave and feel in relationships can say more about you than the other person. And that is completely diametrically opposed to what I think we're taught, which mm. is that it's all about the other person. Yeah. Okay, great. That said, some people are abusive and it doesn't matter what you do, they're not going to magically... Generally, on the whole, research has found that abusive people continue to abuse. You know, mm. if they say it's a one-off, it's highly unlikely. Mm. So on the whole, in that scenario, no. So you have to basically, I think, look at yourself, but also choose wisely. So you have to go into it with the tools of knowing who you are, and then you'll yeah. hopefully be able to spot things, discrepancies sooner. Yeah, and when, I, when you say knowing who you are, I think that that is like a lifelong journey. And totally. I think also who you are will change. But I think that that knowing what you think is important, you know, because mm. also there was the research that I talk about that people um, become more similar over time in long-term relationships. And so, you know, who you choose will really change mm. who you are. If you choose someone really mean, that will change you, you know, fine, they might have muscles or money or whatever it is that is perhaps less mm. important but you know I think sometimes people can be driven to look for things for example money out of a I mean obviously everyone needs enough money to live and poverty is not what I'm talking about but beyond that point mm, money can be like as a sense of security you know um whereas actually what will give you security is not someone having loads of cash but someone being emotionally available and intimate and, and, and committed. Yeah, totally. And also that thing about you becoming more like the person is very true. And I think, especially when I was younger, I was drawn to always want to date someone who would be like a drinker and a smoker. And, a, and actually, as I'm older, my boyfriend loves getting up really early and really likes exercising all the time, which I like doing too. But now I like it even more because we do it all the time oh, together. Yeah. And actually, that's really attractive and yeah. sweet and lovely. Yeah. And he likes making PowerPoints. That hasn't translated yet, but I'm sure at some I point I will get the skills and the knack to be very good at those. And spreadsheets. <laughs> Got a lot of spreadsheets into my email inbox. Does he send you spreadsheets? Mm. Oh. Got one for the fringe. Oh my god! And it will just I be all that. numbered and dates and times. He and, is yeah. a keeper, indeed. I again, not quite there yet with me, but 
looking for those habits which you might not it's it's a nice way of like bringing together two things do you know what I mean yeah. it's good to look for the things you might not have realized to look for before because actually that's really sweet yeah and also on the whole he exercises and it makes you exercise more Aristotle says I love Aristotle that basically uh it's easier to do things like be a good person when there's someone with you who wants to do that too yeah and so you know dating someone who really wants to be a good person and is working on themselves and is open to constructive criticism and being better or whatever um is going to be much it's going to be much easier to evolve and be a good person than someone who isn't prepared to even ask the question in the first place yeah so true oh, amazing so if people want to find you oh yeah uh, I'm on social media at lauramuka.com no that's my website I'm on social media <laughs> at lauramuka which is M-U-C-H-A. Yeah. And I have a website, lauramuka.com. And on the website, oh, maybe I should give it to you. You might want to use it. Um, on my website, if you click on the book, Love Factually, underneath is an audio sample of the interviews. It's like oh, a three-minute sample, which might be interesting or not. And can we pre-order your paperback now? No, not yet. Did I just make that up? No, I don't think, <laughs> I don't know if you can. You can buy the hardback, but the paperback would be cheaper. <laughs> I think it's it's coming out in January. The I think you can pre-order yeah. it on Amazon. Can you? I think so. No, I might have just made that up. Oh yeah, please pre-order it. Can. That would be amazing. Mm. Yeah, because it's cheaper and it's got a really funky cover. I can't believe you know that, and I don't. That's terrible. I <laughs> definitely know that. <laughs> I did my research. What it's... can I say? I'll laugh if I'm wrong. It'll be really funny. <laughs> You'll get home and be like you've just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fab. So I'm excited about that because um, I think. With the hardback, Bloomsbury were like, okay, this is a book about love. We're going to, you know, make it white cover. And now they're like, okay, we're going to make it yellow. Oh, we're going to yeah. have multicolours. It's very funny. It's very funny, the publishing process and, like, the marketing people going off and coming up with their ideas. Of I actually have one last question. Did you have Love Factory from the beginning? Because that is just the best name. I know, isn't it? No, that was my editor's idea. Oh, really? Jim what, Martin. What were you going to call Ledge. it? Uh, you know, I didn't. So, it, I... Uh, <laughs> getting it published was such a pain in the ass and I had loads of rejections and one of the publishers so the way it works is you pitch an idea and they take it to an acquisitions meeting where loads of people sit around a table and debate whether they want to take it on and in one of these the publisher came back and said we don't think it should have love in the title so for a long time it was called human connection but I wondered if that sounded a little bit like you know connection was a bit like a you know an electrical thing mm. um and then I went to Bloomsbury Jim Martin who's amazing and wears Hawaiian shirts uh and those are they called garlands like the floor, oh yeah like he wears those yeah stop and he's got a stuffed duck in his office he's amazing um and he uh said love factually it's perfect and then everyone was very excited so yeah. I just can't believe they wouldn't put love in the title that's literally that's the most British thing I've ever heard well, they, we can't talk about it I know it. well they thought that men wouldn't read it if it had men if it had love in the title but I get a lot of messages from men on social media and email saying thank you for writing the book I can imagine women have are much more easily accessible not much more easy, have much more access to these conversations yes. among peers whereas men probably might not ask their friends no. do you think my relationship is X, Y, Z this but it's great no and also the men that, that I interviewed no it's, it's true the men I interviewed I interviewed this guy uh, in Wales who basically talked about when he went through a really traumatic breakup none of his mates talked about it mm. and the one that did approach him was basically he now discovers I think an alcoholic and said let's go and get smashed and he got so smashed that he 
it, like he basically collapsed and that was it that was his friendship support mm. you know and that's and that's all he got and so I think that you're I mean I haven't I don't, I'm not aware of like large-scale mm. data about this but I but I think you're right I think that's one place where we've benefited from the patriarchy is we have really good toilet chat <laughs> Not scatological. <laughs> I mean, like, in women's bathrooms. Yeah. You could walk into yeah. a women's bathroom after a breakup and be consoled by everyone, by everyone in yeah. the bathroom, even yeah. if you'd never met them. Yeah. And that is really where we've won. Yeah. So. And also, I tried to write the book in a way that would appeal to men and women and everyone. It wasn't meant to be, you know, fluffy. Mm. It was meant to be, this is what I'm saying, and here's the evidence. So, do you have any other products or anything that anyone can follow you on or find you on? Yes. Uh, Laura Mooker. Dot com is my website, M-U-C-H-A, like much with an A on the end. Amazing. And that's why everyone says Laura Mucha when they first meet me. Uh, and at Laura Mooka is social media. And I have some really interesting stuff coming up. Um, some I can't tell you about. I can't tell you the details, but I, I will at some point have a book, for, an illustrated book about love for teenagers and young people. Amazing. And also um, an audio series with Audible on attachment theory. Wow. Um, and I also write loads for children and I have poems. Fab. I love poems. Thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs> Bye. Bye. 